Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I am the traffic anchor and the transportation reporter for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. And if you would like to uh, leave me a question, comment, concern, anything like that, have all the contact links at the uh, description of the show. Or you could call the listener hotline 303-832-0217 is that phone number. Uh, let's uh, get started today with an email I received the other day. Uh, it starts this way. Hi, Jason. My name is Lewis. I'm an SEO executive at Own Your Space. I hope you're well. My name is Lewis. I'm an SEO executive at marketing agency Own Your Own Space. <laughs> okay, Lewis. Uh, you already said that once. I get it. Uh, all right, back to the email. Working with our client First Step Vehicle Solutions. I'm writing to you because I strongly believe I have some interesting content ideas that will be perfect for your website. I came across your blogs, and I think it would be very valuable if you could feature my client in one. Um, I, Lewis, don't have blogs. I have a page on our website, thedenverchannel.com, soon to be denver7.com, finally. Uh, and, and on that page, I post my Driving You Crazy TV stories, and I also have a separate place for these podcasts. Um, but, okay, if you want to call them blogs, let's call them blogs, Lewis. All right, we could also discuss, uh, this is Lewis again, we could also discuss featuring First Step Vehicle Solutions on a separate post. For more information, you can access our client website here at blah, 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 blah. I look forward to reading more from you in the future. Have a great day. I look forward to hearing from you again, Lewis, a repeat. <laughs> Many thanks, Lewis. Well, Lewis, it was nice to hear from you, too. Hearing from you is so nice. Uh, this is how I replied to him, and I decided to do the repeat thing because he was really into it. Uh, Lewis, I looked over your client's website, and it appears they do long-term van rentals in the U.K., and since you're so familiar with my blogs, you would know that I'm a journalist who reports on transportation issues. And while vans are transportation, renting one for a long term is not my idea of transportation news. Additionally, I'm not in the market for a van long term, nor have a business that could use a long term van rental. So that service isn't for me. If your client had some particular news regarding the market for long term van rentals, then let me know. But until then, I'm going to have to pass on your offer. Thanks anyway, Jason. After sending that email off to Lewis, I never heard back from him. Uh, if you think I'm misguided in this, and, and you really think I should give him a call and, and put long-term van rentals here on the show, <laughs> that I might, be, I, I might be missing a whole new segment of the listening audience. Long-term van rentals. Maybe I blew an opportunity here. I don't know. Leave me a comment or... <laughs> oh, man. All right, so in just a bit, I want to read this article about uh, the Hyperloop and some of the major challenges it has. It's really a fascinating look at the complexity of the project. I really think you're going to like it. I actually reached out to the author of this article, and he, this person has not written me back yet, so I, I'm not optimistic that he's going to get back to me We'll see. I, I really hope so, but uh, I, I do at least have 
have the uh, request into him directly to uh, talk about this Hyperloop article. It's really fascinating. Anyway, I, j- I just got back from uh, uh, the latest baton twirling trip that took us to Chicago and South Bend, Illinois. And I have some interesting, oh, it's South Bend, Indiana, Chicago, Illinois. And I have some interesting observations that I'd like to discuss with you. So we flew from Colorado Springs to Midway Airport in Chicago. It was pleasant. Um, not Midway Airport. That's a dump. And it needs a serious facelift. Um, we <laughs> it really is. Um, but it's like Colorado Springs. So, yes, I live in Denver, but I'm on the south side of Denver. And it actually takes me about 45 minutes to drive to Denver International Airport. Uh, while it takes me about 55 minutes to 60 minutes to drive to Colorado Springs Airport. But when I drive to the Denver airport, that's 45 minutes to the out, you know, the outlying shuttle uh, parking area. And then you have to wait for the shuttle bus, and then you have to get on the shuttle bus, and it takes 10 minutes to drop you off at the terminal. And then when you get to the terminal, you have to walk in and go upstairs and then get in that long line to check your bags. And then you go from there to the security deal. Now, we do have TSA pre-check, and that does help speed up the process a bit, but it's still um, pretty pretty lengthy process there. And then you have to get onto the, the train because uh, usually we're on Concourse uh, you know, C, so it takes time to get on the train and get all the way out to the gate. The whole process is a, lot, is a, is a lengthy one. When I drive down to the Springs, yeah, it takes me an extra 15 minutes to drive there, but you walk in, I, I mean, you park right there next to the terminal. You walk in, the parking is cheaper. You, there's only your plane checking in, so it's a couple of people. You go through security, again, just a couple of people. And then you you walk five minutes and you're at your gate, even if it's at the very end of their one concourse. And the best thing about flying out of the Springs or small airports like that, you get off the plane and that's the longest time you have to wait is getting off of the plane, especially if you're sitting somewhere near the back. You get off the plane, you walk down to the baggage, pick it up, because it's usually right there because you have your one plane, and they get the bags out pretty quickly, and you get into your car, and off you go. And it's so much better, especially coming back, uh, than having to deal with all that stuff that you do at the bigger airport at Denver International. So... um and it was interesting when we landed over there at Midway. We did have a, it's a short, they have, they have some shorter, shorter runways. And so we did have a pretty hard stop when we landed. It took some people on the plane by surprise. That's for sure. Um, and there were some things that were rolling to the front of the plane uh, that were sitting on, on the ground there. Um, you know, and we stayed there that night. So interestingly, I guess I can describe this place as a, a cluster hotel block. So basically, right just south of the airport, by a couple of minutes, is a city block, but it's full of, I think, maybe 11 different hotels, all different types of hotels. They're, I mean, they're all basically the same kind of thing, like a Holiday Inn, a Marriott. Uh, there are three different kinds of Marriott. There was a Hilton, like a Sleep Inn, a Hyatt. Uh, I think there was a Hampton. Uh, it, it's an interesting concept as all these hotels are in one spot in one block. There were a couple of, there's like a TGI Fridays there attached to one of the hotels. And then one of the other hotels had another like sports bar deal. Um, so it, 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 it was really interesting to have them all together in one place. And they shared one shuttle van that would take people from the airport to this hotel complex and, and, and back again all for free because I think all the hotels uh, pooled their resources to have the one uh, shuttle. Well, it was a several shuttle vans, but one shuttle van service. 
So the next morning, because I, I rented a car, so I took the shuttle back to the airport the next morning to rent a car. Because, you know, all the, all the hotels share the service. I, I figured I didn't need the extra day, so I, I would wait till the next day and go get the, the uh, car rental. On a side note, why are shuttle buses always so rough? It, it, it always sounds like they're falling apart when you hit a bump. God forbid you hit a large bump and you're sitting in the back. That that really hurts the spine. The metal in there rattles like a monster trying to get out of a cage. <laughs> Goodness. I am definitely an advocate of better shuttle bus shock absorbers and tires and all that. Anyway, all right. So I had to, I'm working on a, a story. I, I'm going off on a different tangent. So I had this story uh, where somebody wrote, wrote to me about rental cars and why in Colorado, where, where I'm, I'm working, uh, do so many of the rental cars have out-of-state license plates? And this person was uh, hinting at, do these rental car companies register the cars in other states because it's too expensive here in Colorado and then import them here? And that's why... When you're renting a car here, you're not going to get one with a Colorado plate. You'll get one with uh, a Texas or Louisiana or Florida, wherever, right? And so I was having to shoot some video of the license plates there in that rental lot because I'm, I'm working on that story. Um, maybe I'll tell you about that story from the, uh, from the mailbag next time. It's, it's actually pretty interesting how it all works out and, and which uh, the car rental companies got back to me about this story. Anyway, I think next time I'm going to uh, tell you about that story. And I uh, bring you that question from the driving you crazy mailbag. Uh, anyway, r- rental car, perf- got it. Well, I, <laughs> the lady said, well, we don't have any of those gold cars left, but you can take one of the pre- presidential one. I'm like, okay. And, uh, and, and, the, and the car, by the way, had a uh, license plate from Louisiana, a business license plate from Louisiana. So off we go. Uh, now, being in Colorado and not driving in Illinois, northern Illinois, and northern Indiana very much, I really forgot how interstates can just all of a sudden be a toll road. I see the signs on I-94 and I-90 or, or I-88 that, that, they're, that these sections are toll roads. Now, I was able, able to avoid it. I really don't like getting into the whole toll road. They, they did have that transponder deal on the windshield of the car, so you could pay, and it was that wasn't a problem. But it, it, obviously, I, I wanted to stay away because... Sometimes they'll pay, they'll charge you a surcharge for using the tolls, and you have to obviously pay the toll. Um, so I kind of wanted to avoid some of that, and I was also trying to avoid some of the truck traffic. Boy, the truck traffic is ridiculous on I ninety four. It was crazy. My wife has never seen so many trucks. There's a huge port on the south side of Lake Michigan, uh, near Gary, Indiana, south of uh, Chicago, and so all those trucks that's that, that are getting all that stuff all that freight or then shipping it into Chicago and, and, uh, across the Midwest there. And there was just, there's trucks everywhere. It's just crazy. But I just forgot how just a, a, an interstate turns into a toll road. I remember down in Florida, they do that South of Naples or, or, uh, Marco Island. I think if you're going across the uh, Everglades, all of a sudden, um, I think it's I-75, it turns into a toll road. There's a toll booth right there. You pay the toll and you keep going across Alligator Alley. So as we're driving to South Bend, I'm, I'm listening to um, the radio. I'm listening to WBBM, all news radio from Chicago. Love listening to that. Wish we had an all news radio station in Denver, but we don't. Um, and I'm and I'm listening. And so the traffic guy comes on and says that there's an intersection. There's a there's an area where the traffic lights are are out. 
And this intersection, he, he called it an always stop intersection. I, I've never heard it referred to. Have you ever heard it referred to as an always stop? At first, I, th- I thought he was saying it's an always stop intersection. But then the second time, he said it more clearly. And in the second report, he said, all way stop. So every, basically every direction stop intersection. That way, it's interesting because it, that way you get out of the problem. If it's a, a two or three way or four way stop intersection, you don't have to worry about saying, you know, because most people here in, in, in Denver, when they're, if you hear the traffic person say, there's a, uh, the traffic lights out, treat it as a four way stop. That's, that's what they will say. Well, not every intersection is a four way stop. It could be a three-way stop. It could be five-way. It could be just two ways because you have the intersection that's flashing uh, yellow or, or let's say re- all red for all directions. So then it's a, it could be, you know, a different way. Anyway, um, it, it's not necessarily always a four-way stop. So I thought it was an interesting term and um, thought about stealing it for my broadcast and always stop intersection. Uh, by the way, it's remarkable how the road service changes right at a state line. It was that way when we went between Illinois and Indiana. It was the same way when we went between Indiana and Michigan. So our hotel in South Bend was just a couple miles south of the Michigan-Indiana state line. And we we had a break on one of the afternoons, so I said to the girls, hey, let's go to the Dairy Queen um, because it was just over the state line in Michigan. And I could say, hey, now you can say you've been to Michigan because they have this – uh, st- uh, this map of all the states, and they cross off or they color in the states that they've been to because of all our baton trips. And so I said, hey, we can just <laughs> run up there to the Dairy Queen, get some ice cream, and then you'll say you've been in Michigan. And so we did, and, and there was this thing. It was uh, There was this uh, road. It's called Ca- uh, State Line Road. And uh, I parked the car, and so Jolene and I, the younger daughter, the other one stayed in the car, and because she was, uh, I don't know why, she was a little freaked out or something. And so Jolene and I got out of the car. We were standing between the states with one foot in one state, one state, and one foot in the other state. <laughs> now we're standing in Michigan. Now we're standing in Indiana. I think it was a pretty cute moment. Uh, also, interestingly, coming into South Bend, you know how most double yellow lines are right next to each other? Uh, on like a, on a divided highway or a, a highway there that doesn't have a median or anything. Because yellow lines are actually separate lines. There's actually one for your direction and one for the other direction. So when you see a double yellow, it's not necessarily just a double yellow. You have a yellow and the other side has a yellow, making it a double yellow. But there in Indiana, they were separated by about a foot. And there was a section of road in there. They had some rumble strips in there. But it was just different to see that double yellow line compared to the traditional double yellow where they're just right next to each other. But it, it gets the same point across because, um, yeah, you're just not supposed to cross that yellow line because there's danger on the other side. It looked a bit strange, but again, those lines are not technically tied together. And did you realize that you will never, I'm just bouncing around all over the place. Did you, do you, do you realize that you'll never experience more loud truck and motorcycle sounds than when you're staying in a hotel room on a main road in the room right next to the road? I, I it must be Murphy's law must be. So they put us on the fourth floor front of the hotel corner room. And the loudness of this road was just awful, especially at night. It was, it was quite loud. Every loud truck coming out of Michigan or <laughs> loud motorcycle 
was passing right by us. So we had our baton uh, deal. We were doing baton twirling, and well, I was, and I was watching. There were people everywhere. It was really remarkable how many people were there. We were. It was all on the campus of Notre Dame, and they have their arena, and then they have where they have the basketball games, and then they have another arena that size, just without the stands in it, where they have more twirling going on. And they had two other, three other separate gyms where they had other twirling going on. It was just madness from place to place. One of the events, my daughter had. 42, there were 42 contestants in one of her events, and they had to split it up into two groups. Uh, there were so many twirlers there. It was, it was quite, it was quite the experience. Anyway, on the way out of town after four days of twirling, I, I noticed this sign that read North-South Continental Divide, and I thought it was a little strange. Obviously, I've been to our Continental Divide here in Colorado where it separates the east and west parts of the United States. So I had to look it up, and, and it, according to the Indiana Historical Society, the north-south continental divide separates the Great Lakes drainage from the Mississippi River drainage system. Makes sense. Uh, another interesting thing about downtown South Bend is that they had a stop sign, I think they had a couple of them, right there in the middle of an intersection. Not just at the corner, they did that too, where you're supposed to stop. But this is a, a structure made of metal for like these poles, right? Not just one pole, but like a box of poles right there with signs on all four sides right in the middle of the road. It did make the stop more visible for sure. It also made that a slight hazard, probably a major hazard if you're trying to plow the road. But every town has a little bit of uniqueness to uh, to how you drive in it and to some of the road signs, and, and that was one of the interesting things there in South Bend. So we headed back to Chicago after those four solid days of baton twirling. I do have some of those videos of the event on my Jason Luber Traffic Guy Facebook page if you want to see them. Uh, just go, just look up Jason Luber Traffic Guy, and uh, boom, they're right there on Facebook. And when we got to Chicago... I, I still had the car, but uh, it was easier to use Uber and Lyft just to get dropped off because we were going down to the Riverwalk and we were going to these different places that didn't have easy accessible parking. And when we did, we went over one time to the Navy Pier and the parking was cr- like, I, I'm not kidding. It was like 12 bucks an hour. It was just ridiculous how much the parking was over at the Navy Pier when we went over there. So it was just easier to keep the car over at the hotel and take the Ubers or the Lyfts to get around town until we went the next day over to uh, the lake, Lake Michigan, and we went for a beach day. So it was better to have the car there and drive up to the to the lake. Anyway, and what what I thought was interesting was the prices between the two companies. It was it was actually different on, on uh, at, for the same ride at the same time. And one thing I like to do when I'm in a Uber or Lyft is I usually, because I had my family with me, so we had three people, I didn't have to sit in the back. I actually had to sit in the front because we had the back seat of these cars filled with my two daughters and my wife, and so I would sit in the front. And I like talking to the drivers. I, I, I want to know from their perspective what it's like to be a driver and what it is that they enjoy about the job or hate about the job and some of their challenges. And as I'm talking to these drivers, one of them 
told me the only way you really make money with either company, because most of them, if you're in an Uber, then it's uh, Uber or Lyft or whatever. They, they work for both companies. They just decide to turn on the app for one or the other, depending on the day and, and depending on, uh, I guess, uh, on, on how well it's doing for one or the other. So th- this one guy said that the only way he really makes money with, with either company is by first renting a car through Uber and then driving about 10 hours a day, six days a week. And that part was most interesting, that he rents a car from Uber and that he earns, if he's working about 10 hours a day, six days a week, he earns anywhere from 2000 to $2,500 a week. And he's being charged around three to $400 for that rental car. Because I had no idea, I didn't realize you could actually rent a car from Uber and then drive it. Uh, but to me, that is the way to go if it doesn't cost too much. So I, so I started looking into it. He said the rental was about $400 a week. He had a Tesla, so he was saving money on gas, but but the car is more expensive to rent. They did have rental cars for around $250, $280, but more like a Corolla kind of a car. But then they had the Teslas that were more expensive, um, But and it was through a rental car company. So Uber, you, you go through Uber, but then you also go through like Hertz or Avis and get your rental car because it's not Uber doesn't have a fleet of rental cars. They have a contract with one of these traditional rental car companies that you get a car and then you uh, can use that for your Uber driving around. Um, I I think this guy was obviously spending less on gas because he had the Tesla, but he was also spending more on the Tesla to rent it. But he also said that he could then charge or he could then pick up passengers who are looking for a green option. Uh, there's a uh, one of those cars. So you have the Uber, the Uber X, see all these different choices. And one of the choices is to spend is to get into a green car, which would be an electric car. And the Tesla gets him those fares as well. So I, I looked into that that whole thing, and and it's really interesting because it, it does include insurance and basic maintenance. Uh, at least according to the website. Now, I don't know why you would need to have it include basic maintenance if you're renting a car. He says he's renting it for the week, and then he turns it in and gets a different one. Um, because let's say let's say you do that. Let's say you were, you're working, I don't know, six days a week, about 10 hours a day. Uh, you, you're earning about $1,800 a week after your expenses. And if let's say you're doing that 48 weeks a year, so you take four weeks off for vacation or time, whatever. I mean, that's about eighty-five, eighty-six thousand dollars a year. That's that's pretty good for for driving around a city. I mean, not working that much is it's not optimal. And I'm sure there is is some downtime in that 10 hours that he told me about. But if you, you don't if you don't have to worry about maintaining the car, it, that that is probably the biggest expense of being a gig worker and working for Uber or Lyft. It has to be because the oil changes, the brakes, the tires, the depreciation, the wear and tear on your own personal car has to be the the most single expensive issue that you're dealing with. And I would not want to put all those miles on, on my car. If it's just a rental, all the better for the driver. And this guy said he can make about $1,500 a week if he works just six to eight hours a day for five days a week. 
So it's still pretty good. It's still about $70,000 a year. Um, if you're just working a regular, if you want to say nine to five job, you're eight to nine hours a day for five days a week. So you're still making, you know, between 70 to 80 grand a year. And he says he does depend on some tips and it does help, but, um, it's all about drive, 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 and take as many, um, uh, fares as he can. Uh, even though that driver was a bit disgruntled with Uber, he didn't go into it very much, but it, there was uh, some animosity he had towards Uber, and, and he says he, he sometimes he'll just switch off the Uber thing, and then he'll drive for Lyft, and then he'll go back to the Uber. Um, but we did get picked up by a couple of drivers that were just on Lyft, and when I called um, for a Lyft, since Uber was $15 more, this guy, <laughs> this other guy... Uh, said he he was having a problem with Uber too and how expensive it was and he wasn't getting any fares so he switched over to Lyft and he started picking up more fares and I, I wonder if there's something between the two companies how they're setting prices and if if one company is setting a price the other company will start undercutting them and so their drivers are starting to make more money and take more uh, fares and but that's that's good. competition is good in this space because it only helps a consumer um, right. But it, it makes you think about that as an option as, as a worker, because um, we got <laughs> we got into one car, and this guy was a smoker, and it smelled bad. It was just a short trip, so we stayed in the car, but it wasn't the greatest ride, and my wife was not happy with it. Um, and there was this other woman who picked us up, and all of a sudden, you could hear kind of just talking lightly, just, just fairly quietly and I figured she was actually on the phone with somebody <laughs> she wasn't talking to us you could see then the uh, ear pod thing in, in in her ear and she was talking to somebody that she was on the phone with and it was just a casual conversation as we're all in the car just going around and I don't know about you but are you having a conversation with your passengers while you're in the car in the uber maybe maybe not I my wife goes clam cold I mean just does not talk quiet it's silence, <laughs> except for me talking to the Uber driver or Lyft driver, trying to figure out uh, what it, what it's like to be one of those drivers. But um, And while driving around, a couple of observations. There were lots of expired license plate tags in Chicagoland. One that I saw from exactly a year ago. <laughs> the funniest thing I think I saw was an Aston Martin with a tree air freshener hanging from the rearview mirror. <laughs> Why would you do that to an Aston Martin? It's like putting a bumper sticker on a Ferrari. No, thank you. <laughs> That's, I mean, seriously. All they needed was fuzzy dice and it would have been perfect. Um, by the way, uh, when sitting on an airplane, I think the takeoff, that experience for most people, has to be one of the most anxious times ever. Knowing that you're sitting there with all these other people and you have no control over this situation and if something goes wrong, the opportunity for catastrophe is extreme. You hear the engines roar. You're in that seat. You, you start getting pushed back a little bit. And, and then you take off, and there's that uncomfortable feeling as, as the plane lifts off and then starts to pull back. The pilot pulls back on the power a little bit, and then you feel that little pit in your stomach as you start to rise up a little bit. 
and then you're in that seat for the next however many hours until those wheels touch the ground, providing you again with one of the most powerful feelings of relief <laughs> a person can experience. That feeling of, ah, man, we're on the ground. It's like nothing else. And what made me think of that is hearing, I remember listening to the couple that was behind me and how their tone of voice changed. When we were flying, it was one way. And after we landed, it was completely different, more relaxed, more easygoing. Maybe they were just happy to be home or, or there in, in the Springs or on vacation, wherever. Um, but, uh, but I just think it was part of that relief by everybody, all passengers, to be safely on the ground uh, when you're there on a, on a flight. So that was a brief synopsis of some of the observations I had there in Chicago. It was a pretty interesting trip. I'd never seen so many boats <laughs> on the Chicago River. They have boats. They have they have tour boats that go through there, and they have rental boats. They had rental pontoon boats and rental big boats, and <laughs> they had this little boat. It looks like it kind of looks like a little speedboat, but it's miniature size. It'd be like a mini car where you could put two people, one uh, driving the boat, somebody <laughs> right next to them, and then a. a Two seats right behind them, directly behind them. It was just this little bitty boat, and I don't think they would let you go into Lake Michigan with it and maybe just tool around in the Chicago River, but I thought it was pretty funny. Um, but it was it, it's unique to be there in Chicago and and get a chance to you know dip into the lake. And My daughters have never been in a lake, especially that big, where it looks like an ocean, but there's very little waves, the the Water is fresh water. You don't have that salt water. You don't have all the pounding waves on you. You don't have the little creatures grabbing your feet while you're out there. You're not worried about a shark nipping at your heels. So uh, I think they had a good time. I don't know if they're they're huge lake fans, but uh, there we were in Lake Michigan. All right, so, so here is this scientific website. It's called BigThink.com, and they publish an article and this article was called Elon Musk's Hyperloop is Possible. How badly do we want it? Question mark. It's written by Tom Hartsfield. He's a PhD physicist living in Los Alamos, New Mexico. Now, because if you never heard of Los Alamos, that's where they did the nuclear bomb. They do a lot of stuff down there. Uh, secret government work. I'm just speculating here, but I, I hope he works at the National Lab down there doing cool secret government work. And that's why he hasn't gotten back to me um, as I, I reached out to him for an interview about this article. Anyway, I found this article so fascinating, and he brings up some really interesting points. And, and hopefully he will contact me and we'll get him on the show. Uh, but I still want to go through his article here um, about the Hyperloop. This is how Tom Hartsfield starts the story. The speed of nearly every vehicle in our atmosphere is limited first and foremost by the resistance of the air into which it plows. Reduce the air pressure and boom, it can now travel at a greater speed. Put a bullet train in a vacuum tube and it can travel nearly the speed of sound. The idea isn't new. Indeed, something similar was proposed centuries ago. Physicists will tell you that the idea works, but pesky engineers will point out the many tough problems that exist in actually building it. But thankfully, we can solve hard engineering problems. Example, the Seattle area is putting the finishing touches on the world's first light rail on a floating bridge. Let's look at the major challenges facing Elon Musk's Hyperloop. 
Human beings have limited tolerance for acceleration, so-called G-forces. Acceleration isn't just pushing the gas pedal. It also involves staying at the same speed, but turning. Can this be achieved without making people vomit or pass out? Absolutely. Commercial jets travel at more than 500 miles an hour. They climb and descend. They turn and are jostled by air turbulence. They decelerate from flying speed to taxiing in a matter of seconds. Yet, most of the time, people aren't nauseated or terrified. Um, <laughs> Tom, I, I, as I said just a little bit ago, I think a lot of people are terrified. And <laughs> they're only relieved when, you, when, you land, uh, when the plane lands safely on the ground. All right, Tom, once again, Hartsfield, uh, from the article in BigThink.com about the Hyperloop. And the entire system is incredibly efficient. Planes are constantly landing and taking off one after another. The Hyperloop could be modeled after this. But there's one big difference. Airplanes are in the sky while the Hyperloop would be on the ground. Clearing a smooth, straight, easy path for the tube would require a significant amount of work. But... We've done this before, the Eisenhower interstate system. If a mountain gets in the way, we tunnel through it. If a rock wall cuts across, we blast it. If a bay exists, we bridge or tunnel under it. If the terrain is rough, we smooth it. This engineering challenge is doable. The Hyperloop essentially is a long vacuum-sealed tube. There is very little air inside to cause resistance, which is why the train can travel so fast, perhaps 760 miles an hour. Maintaining this vacuum, about one thousandth the pressure of Earth's atmosphere through millions of cubic feet of volume will be a big challenge. Whenever passengers enter or exit the system, the Hyperloop has to be temporarily unsealed. Thus, stations would require interlocks. Once passengers are on board, the train moves into the interlock and the surrounding air is pumped out. When a vacuum is achieved in the interlock, it opens on the other side to allow the train to join the main track. For structural integrity, the giant tube likely would be steel rather than the beautiful, clear fantasy material seen in promotional materials. If the steel is welded together, it would be extremely resistant to air leaks, but it would thermally expand and contract as one giant mass, which would require a lot of engineering to allow the structure to move freely. If the system instead is made of a great number of small steel tubes connected by joints, these joints must be able to maintain the integrity of the vacuum, and the engineering must be perfect. If one joint fails, the result is catastrophic. There are at least two ways in which a trip on the Hyperloop could end in a catastrophe. In one scenario, the train stops moving for whatever reason. Passengers would be marooned, possibly in the middle of nowhere, with a dwindling air supply. Perhaps the Hyperloop could include a mechanism to break the vacuum in certain sections, allowing passengers to disembark and escape, but this isn't easy because of the second possible disaster scenario. If a seal breaks, the opening instantly sucks in air at an incredible rate filling the vacuum inside. Remember, nature hates a vacuum. This would create an air shock blast wave traveling down the tube at roughly the speed of sound. If the tube bursts behind a train, the passengers would be subjected to a giant, likely lethal acceleration and then propelled forward at 700 miles an hour with no brakes. 
If the tube fails in front of the train, passengers would be blasted with an air shock that would instantly annihilate the train and everyone inside. Worse, any accident doesn't just affect one train. A shockwave would obliterate anyone unlikely enough to be anywhere inside the Hyperloop. This again from (laughs) Tom Hartsfield, a Ph.D. physicist living in Los Alamos, talking uh, about the Hyperloop and is it possible on this website called Big Think. What Tom just described there is terrifying. Terrifying. (laughs) Having a a shockwave, a shock blast traveling at 700 miles an hour that obliterates the train? That has to be worked out, apparently. All right, Tom continues. Engineering might be able to solve the problem, but the question involves cost and practicality. Could the tube contain many special sections that are capable of rapidly deploying a giant valve to maintain the vacuum? Could these special sections hold against the oncoming shockwave? Or would these special sections act as sacrifices to ward off an even greater catastrophe? Finally, considering that a vehicle crashing into the tube could be enough to blow it open, even a single 50 caliber bullet could potentially destroy an entire Hyperloop and kill everyone on board. The Hyperloop, therefore, would require a lot of monitoring and security both inside and outside the tube. There are several things in favor of Hyperloop. It will be a much faster way to travel, will greatly increase reduce the emissions associated with transportation and undeniably has an intangible coolness factor, but the cons are considerable with safety and cost being the most pressing engineering. The hyperloop is possible, but like building a colony of Mars, the biggest question might be one of willpower. How badly do we want it? Again, this is an article from Tom Hartsfield, PhD physicist, talking on uh, or writing in, in bigthink.com. I have the link to this uh, article in the description of this show, and I'm still hoping to have Tom on the show and talk more about this uh, issue. And, and, and some of these concerns may be a little bit exaggerated, but I don't, I, I don't see how. I, I mean, if you have a vacuum that has a leak in it and air is rushing in there, it's, it's just like the opposite of a, when a dam breaks and all the water pours out. Well, all the water pours in or the air pours in. And perhaps some Hyperloop developers have proposed solutions to, to deal with these issues, but nothing about safety and security has appeared in any number of these feasibility studies for the Hyperloop, which when, when, you, when you see any, any materials written for these things, it looks like it's a brochure that you're going to go live in the next best great retirement community. It's really pretty. Until some independent engineering and studies have been conducted, especially concerning these failure models and, and, and modes of way ways the Hyperloop could be compromised, uh, until all of that can be reviewed and, and studied, I think I'm going to remain a little bit skeptical that the Hyperloop really has any likelihood of becoming a true new mode of passenger travel. I've I've said that I think it actually has more uh, legs for commercial travel. So in other words, shipping containers from one place to another. Let's say Chicago to Denver. 
you're shipping, instead of using trucks, you can put all those cargo containers in a Hyperloop pod like you do at the bank and then zip, 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 zip. You can zip those things in those, maybe not a true vacuum, but maybe a near vacuum. So you do reduce the drag, but it's not as dangerous if there is a problem. And I think that ha- ship, you know, d- doing shipping across l- long distances or even shorter distances in these little chunks, you go from, let's say, Chicago to uh, Des Moines and then Des Moines to Omaha and then Omaha to what? Uh, Kansas City and Kansas City to Denver. So you have these more small chunks where all this stuff is going between these hubs. Uh, and, and I think that would save a whole lot of time, money, and cost in shipping. But maybe it can't be a true vacuum. Maybe it just has to be a partial vacuum so you don't have some of these uh, engineering issues. Um, but no, I, I look... We have some pretty smart engineers out there, and I'm still hoping Tom will uh, get back to me and we can have him on the show here. And when he does, well, either way, I guess I'll have him on or I won't. (laughs) There you go. If you have any questions, comments, concerns about uh, that or anything talked about today, uh, shoot me an email or shoot me a uh, message on the old uh, Twitter machine, and you can uh, get to me also on the listener hotline, 303-832-0217. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, I'm Jason Luber, the Traffic Guy. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring.